0: Uh, as you guys have know, we've been kind of journeying a bit through the backside of Easter, been looking at the book of Acts just a little bit, and we'll be here through uh, all of summer, just kind of looking and seeing and exploring Acts 2 through Acts 10. Um, and today we get to this passage, this passage on the early church, on what the early church is doing. But before we jump into like Acts 2, 42 through 47, I want to I wanna tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about a monk named Boniface. Does anyone know the name Boniface? These two? Yeah? Three? Got three? That's beautiful. So Boniface uh, was not his original name. His original name was Winfred, but he was a Catholic monk. And uh, Pope Gregory II commissioned Boniface to be a missionary to the Germanian people. This is back, I want to say, I don't have it in front of me. I want to say it was eighth century. Can anyone verify, Caleb? When was it? No, you don't have that? Okay. So but Boniface was, uh, I believe, back in the 8th century, was commissioned as a missionary to share the good news of King Jesus with the Germanian people. Um, And at this time, there was a village that Boniface came across. Um, and this village was like a pagan village. It was given over to like animal and human sacrifice as acts of worship to the god Thor, the Norse god, the god Thor. And they recognize and symbolize this place or this enshrinement, this place of worship was at this tree just outside the village. This is where they would go and worship Thor or sacrifice to Thor or... Um, Or yeah, just like take their homage to Thor. And they believed, the Germanian people believed, that like whoever touched the tree, Thor would shoot down from the heavens a lightning bolt and kill those people. And so on the scene comes Boniface. And Boniface uh, knows God, knows him, knows Yahweh, has a relationship with the living God. And so because of that, he knows that God, Yahweh, the like, supreme being of the heavens, um, has triumphed, all, uh, triumphed over all of the powers of darkness. So Boniface is not scared of Thor or the tree or the villagers in any capacity. And to prove this, Boniface doesn't decide that he's going to touch the tree. Boniface decides he's going to take an axe and cut the tree down. And so a bunch of people from the village show up to see Boniface cut this tree down because they're convinced that Thor is going to like fry Boniface. And of course, we know, or the story goes, that that, uh, Boniface cuts the tree down. The Germanian people are astounded. Many come to be baptized that day. Because tearing down idols of our culture in order to see the revealed real God is deeply, deeply important. Boniface gives us a picture of that, but I will tell you a story about a tree I've had to fell in my own life. I remember uh, when Jackie and I were young, we're still young, we were younger, and so I remember when we were younger, and I was like 24 years old when I just started my teaching career. I'd been teaching for a couple of years uh, at Emerson Middle School in South High, and God began to stir some new things in our heart, and I remember this wrestle, and if you're a teacher or you're friends with a teacher, you know this wrestle, it's like, it's very real, that like, I could stay on this career path for the next 30 years and have a fantastic retirement plan. If you know teachers, they'll often say, like, I'm 15 years or I'm 20 years out. And then, like, this this goal, this retirement thing that I've served so long for, I finally get to achieve it and then do whatever it is I want to do. And, And even in my own life, I remember the point of thinking, like, if I could I could just live and get and work to those 30 years and then hit retirement and be free to do whatever I want or I could like cut down the tree that was this retirement that meant like I was going to stay in this career regardless of what I felt called to because of this retirement tree. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Okay, Um, Even spoke with some friends yesterday who were residents here in Kern County at KMC, and they were sharing like they love getting to serve people as doctors, but there's also a bit of a trap in this, so they're just sharing their experience that we said yes to wanting to serve people, but like honestly, we're so bound by student loans now, we couldn't not be doctors if we didn't want to. And so, what what I share that story for is we all have these like trees in our life, on the periphery of who we are, that want us to like give homage to them, want us to orient our life toward those things. And I'm not saying don't plan for retirement. I'm not saying don't become a doctor. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is ensure that the thing that we're worshiping, the thing we're orienting our lives toward, the thing that our life is about is about King Jesus and the kingdom of God breaking in. Because that that will last longer than any retirement package ever could. That has more like the kingdom math or the kingdom economy is the economy that like should beckon our hearts in our lives, not just like the economy of this world. I share those stories because as we look to this story in Acts, the first thing I think uh, that is appropriate for us to do is to swing um acts. I just it registered in my mind. It's to swing an axe at the cultural moment we are in. That was not planned whatsoever. And I think that the thing we need to swing our axe at a little bit today is the idea of individualism within the Christian community. If we're really gonna talk about axe two if we're really going to talk about the forna- formation of a new community of followers of Jesus, if we're really, as River and Way, going to try to like lean in toward the ideal of Christian community, first, we have to be willing to dismantle Christian individualism that has crept into these walls. And when I say that, I don't mean the building. I mean God's people in the church. You see, our country was founded on individualism. The American story is one rich with individualism. Each individual has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the stories we tell in our like American lore are always stories about one hero who comes to save the day. Think John Wayne or the Lone Ranger or like Avengers, depending on what your childhood is like. But any modern day superhero um, usually is like the pinnacle of the story where a individual comes in to rescue all of society. Most of history, and surely Christendom, does not look so much like that. The stories we tell teach us that a singular person is not all wrong and we will get to that but that has been baked into our cultural dna to believe like at some level although we would never say it out loud that if i try hard enough i can be the hero of my own story that if we try hard enough we could be the hero of my own story that our story is fundamentally about us about you and about me that at, at the story's center is me and my life. And if we just try hard enough or show up at the right time, then we can be the hero and be who we've always really wanted to be. And, and to be clear, like I said, individualism is not all bad. It is a good thing that we have access to individual freedoms in our country the right to freedom of speech, the right to freedom of religion, where we can do this. We can gather as people who follow and love Jesus and express our thoughts and minds in praise, in worship, in adoration of our King. And the the reality that like individualism, like having individual choice and getting to worship God in this country, those things do belong together. Like that individual freedom belongs. And these are good things of individualism. But the slippery slope of individual freedom that we stand on can often become like a dangerous individualistic worldview, where the meaning and purpose of my life is my own personal fulfillment. For us, it isn't about being the hero that rides in and saves the day but either consciously or unconsciously, subconsciously, I'm not sure how to say that word, but we define the picture of the good life around pursuing the things I most want and desire. Or the phrase that I myself have used often to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps over and over again, or maybe the more honest way of saying that would be to save myself over and over and over again and though we don't say it out loud how i interact in the world when i carry this individualistic worldview is fundamentally about me it has me not jesus it has me at the center it's about my betterment my advancement my dreams my wishes my desires and and again we can like get to the point not not Like those things aren't all bad. I don't want to like frame that and I don't want you to hear that. But but what becomes bad is when those become the primary things we're holding, that no longer looks or sounds like Christ or Christianity. When my dreams, desires, wants, and preferences are at the center and Christ's are not, we have quite literally left Christendom. Does that make sense? And so I, like, I understand this is a bit of a difficult thing to name, but it's also a bit of an idol in our culture. And so we have to name it. We have to call it what it is in order to more authentically pursue and follow the way of King Jesus. John 5, verse 19 says, very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by him. And the father says, no. And Jesus says, OK then I will do my Father's will. I will participate with God in the redemption story of humanity. And that, again, just lives in contrast to the idea that like what we desire most ought to be the central of our lives. Matthew 20, verse 28 says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, and what I think is important to capture as we like conclude like almost part one of today's teaching is that this root of belief around individualism and this hyper-focus of ourselves has bled into the church reality for some time now. That's why when we read passages like Acts 2, 42 through 47, they almost seem otherworldly because they're very different than the world and the reality that we inhabit. And one of the ways that, or the downfalls of individualism and how it snuck into the story of the church is that, that post-Reformation, 500 years ago was the Reformation, and post that, after that, what we see is a, a response from the Protestant movement, from the protesters, and what we see is that uh, they are championing a more individualized response of grace in confession a more individualized concept of salvation rather than just communal salvation, individual salvation. And that's a really, really, really good and important thing. I'm really grateful that that happened. I'm really grateful that we've inherited a, a history that, that has a part of its like centrality, a personal individual relationship with Jesus. And out of the scriptures, we see that happening. We see Jesus interacting with people. And we see Jesus healing individual people. And we see people individually being baptized. And these are elements to the Christian story that are individualized. And they belong. But the reality is that also, Jesus talks about not just the individual, but the church. And in the book of Acts, we're looking at the formation of this new community. And, and the way that Luke writes about this new community is not like it's a bunch of individuals who have a relationship with God, and that is the only piece or element alone, but Luke writes about it like there's this new community, or to use what Jesus describes as the church most throughout the gospels, is this picture of family. Not a bunch of individuals who happen to have a relationship with the same person, but a family together. And that's what we see in Acts 2, 42 through 47. Jesus, all throughout the gospels, uses the terms brothers and sisters more than anything else to describe the church. Not followers of God, not keepers of the law, nothing like that, brothers and sisters. And so we, as we step into this passage and look toward a vision of community for the church, we have to rethink the way we think about following Christ about following Jesus. Not just like, yes, an individual person's response to God's love and grace and kindness, but yes, also part of a living, breathing, functioning family. These things have been stripped apart and we need to do the work to put them back together. You see, when God calls people to follow him, the invitation is to an individual, but the implication of that invitation is always to become a part of a community always to become a part of a family. It's always to become a part of God's people, not person, but people. And what is difficult about this conversation and looking at this idea is we're just like not used to living into family systems in the West. Like our nuclear family, our parents or our children, is about as far as our picture of family gets. I remember when we were first dreaming of house churches, uh, and we were talking about the idea of God's people gathered together all across the city. We wanted to like hijack the term familia. In our culture, in Bakersfield culture, in Latin culture, familia means way more than like, my parents or my children. It means my aunts and my uncles. It means the, the people who are relatives who aren't even really relatives. That's what familia means, because what God's getting after here in the book of Acts is birthing a new familia, a new family, a new way to be human as a part of a community. I remember, uh, it, because how we, how we think about that frames the way that we participate in it. Because often we like, take our own ideals and prioritize those. Part of that's the individualistic story. I prioritize my own ideals over the family or over the community which I exist a part of. And that is just simply not the way of Christ. It's not the way of Jesus. I remember when my family and I moved back to Bakersfield and we first moved into our house. And if you don't know, I do a little bit of woodworking. Like I'm not fantastic, but I'm good enough to get by. And uh, we were living in our trailer in the driveway. And Jackie, being the like hospitable homemaker that she is, really wanted us to like get indoors quickly. And But in my mind, I'm like, rather than get indoors quickly, what would be great is if I built every single piece of furniture in our house by hand. That would be great. And that lasted for like three weeks. And then Jackie was like, we have to get in. And, that, and then like once we get in, we have to get the kids' beds off the floor. And then like we need to put the folding table out of the dining room and get a real dining table. But one of the, one of the realities is like this was a constant, you may think it's funny, to me it wasn't at the time. This was a constant fight in our, in our family. Like I really wanted to build everything by hand because my ideal trumped the need of our family community. The thing I clung to, my individualistic dream trumped what our family needed at the time. My ideal actually put aside love for others. My ideal, the thing I wanted, made me put love for others away. And I want us to see like that frame, that contextual frame of the American story that we have inherited. Not in a conscious, like, I agree to these doctrines sort of way, but like, this is just a part of the ethos of the story we live into. It's a part of the ethos of our culture. And so as we look at Christian community in Acts 2, we must be aware that that context lives on the backside of all of our lives. Lives on the backside of all of our lives. And I think it would do us some good to cut the tree down a bit. There is a clear picture from the text, from the scriptures, that it is not good for people to live outside of community. Philosophically, and, and um, yeah, philosophically, we don't have a problem believing this. Sociologically, we don't have a problem believing this. But one thing that Christian community does that's different than all the other communities is we have a like central allegiance to the person of Jesus that beckons us to have love for one another, not because it's convenient, or easy, or circumstantially acceptable, but because of Christ, we have love for one another. Joseph Hellerman, in his book, counts over the well-being of any group, our church, or our family, for example. The immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long term health of the group. So when things get hard, we leave and we withdraw rather than stay and grow up. When the going gets rough in the church or the home, then we for two thousand years. And I think there's an invitation baked into this Acts 2 story to begin to see like the unity of believers, unity of people who follow Jesus, as a primary and central way that we communicate the love of God to the world by the way that we love one another. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will not allow me and Jesus to both be at the center of my life. And that is a truth that we need to wrestle with. The kingdom of God or the way of God, whatever you prefer, will not allow me and Jesus, me and God, to both be at the center of my life. We can have one or the other. We can pursue one sort of kingdom or the other sort of kingdom. But Jesus does not allow like mixed allegiance in his kingdom. Jesus is king. And we recognize Jesus as king and submit to the ways of his kingdom, or we don't. Or we don't. And I think the reality is that this is tough. It's tough for me. It's tough for me to even say. And I think if I'm honest, it's because I'm I'm probably more self-centered than I'm willing to admit that I am. My life is just fundamentally more about me than I wish it actually were. It's more about my wants and needs and preferences and pleasures and desires. It's more about those things than I would ever care to admit. And so this reality, this acts to tension, grates up against like one of the things I actually carry like deep shame and embarrassment about is that like, I really, really, really love Jesus, but I also really, really, really love the things that I want to do. And that's the reality. Like those things just, they exist in tension together. And I get to yield to one of them. I get to choose one of them. But the question is like, ultimately my deepest desire is to choose the way of Jesus, but like my life doesn't just look like that all the time. And that's hard and that's messy. That feels really bad. And like so many of you know this because this is your your deepest desire is Jesus. But so much of my life just doesn't look like Jesus. It looks more about my preferences and my desires and my wants and my comforts. And the list goes on and on. And actually, one of the things that I hope for today is that Jesus would give us new vision of flourishing in this place. That, like, we would actually begin to think that Jesus' way and plan for flourishing is so much better than ours, so much better than the story we've inherited, that I have to, like, get mine in order to flourish. That is not Jesus' language. And I think the invitation today is for us just to, like, continue to grow in our desire to yield. I remember Jake's prayer and pre gathering prayer this morning, like, to live is Christ is Paul's words. Not to live is like most of what I want with some Jesus sprinkled in, like to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I think the fundamental question that we're answering with this conversation is the question, like when we live in an individualistic way, what happens is the question we unknowingly answer is how do I most protect myself? and pursue my goals, or maybe said differently, how do I be faithful to myself and pursue my goals? In the Christian worldview, the way of Jesus invites us to ask a different sort of question altogether, which is how do I be faithful to Jesus with what he has placed in my life and most contribute to the flourishing of the people that I encounter? It is clear that we are made to be in relationship and in community with other people. We see this like as we understand God as the Father, Son, and the Spirit, we also should see the idea that like God has eternally been in relationship. Eternally, forever past, forever future, the Father has been in relationship with the Son and the Spirit, and the Trinity has always been in relationship with itself. So it makes sense that born out of Trinitarian love would be a story that beckons us and calls us into relationship. But if that's not clear enough, and it may not be, that's okay. Let's look at Genesis 2, verse 15 through 18. I think it'll be on the screen as well. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And while this language about a helper suitable for him is deeply important to the conversation around Christian marriage and biblical sex ethic, that is not what we want to focus on today. What we want to see is this. God is fully present to Adam in the Garden of Eden. And Adam is fully present to God and the tasks that God has given him in the Garden of Eden. Can we see that? Like, do we see and agree that those are real things that are happening? And while God is present to Adam and Adam is present to God, God, like, according to God, like, that union between those two is not enough. Verse 18 again, it is not good for the man to be alone. Adam's fully present to God. God is fully present to man. And then God says, it is not good for man to be alone. So God says this, that it's not okay for Adam to be alone. And there's there's kind of two contexts for this. The first is marriage context, which is absolutely present in the text. But the second, and what we're focusing on today, is a community context, that it is not good for Adam, a human, to be alone, meaning an isolated human from other people or isolated to be by himself. And so it's from like that inheritance of the Judeo-Christian story that like is the context for Acts 2. So this isn't like a new concept in Acts 2. This has been like the fundamental move from God that people exist in relationship together with him as their king from the very beginning. So in Acts In the book of Acts, we have an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Jesus' disciples and the forming of a new type of community. And this time, there's no laws given to govern them like in the Old Testament, but they're given the Spirit of God to dwell inside of them and govern them, that they would be people that yield not to the law, but to the Spirit. And this new community of a Spirit has a handful of distinct markers that are revealed in this section of the book of Acts. Acts. And the reality is there's some debate over Acts 2 in this specific text that is this descriptive of the time or is this prescriptive is this what the church is supposed to look like forever and I think that what happened in the early church here in Acts 2 is a both and it's not an either or it's not like just descriptive of what happened and it's also not like fully prescriptive of what's going to happen like they both belong It was descriptive of what happened and should inform what the continuation of the church looks like in some way, shape, or form. So I want to read that text again, Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So what we see as distinctive marks from this community is that they're a community that praises God together. They're a community that scatters together as the church across the city or the village. They're a community that gathers together as the church. They're a community that practices radical generosity with one another. Just think for a second, like how radical that generosity was. We have a tendency, because it's far away in history, to go like, "Oh, that's no big deal. Like if I lived then, I would do that too." No, you wouldn't. (laughs) Neither would I. (laughs) And so this is, but like that's the invitation to follow Jesus: is to practice radical generosity. They're a community empowered by the Holy Spirit for the sake of the church and the world. They're a community devoted to the apostles' teaching fellowship, eating together, and praying together. And this is not, like I said, just the model of Acts 2, but we see this modeled all throughout the scriptures. If anything, the story of God informs us that our individual life and story are about the other bigger story. It's about service to God and service to neighbor, to love God and love neighbor in Jesus's words. You see, the scriptures are filled with passages describing how we should relate to one another. In the New Testament alone, there are 59, 59, 59 other passages in the scriptures that talk about how we engage in relationship with one another. That we should love one another, that we should instruct one another, live in harmony with one another. When you eat, wait for one another. Serve one another, forgive one another, bear with one another, suffer with one another, encourage one another, build up one another, pray for one another, and the list goes on and on and on. These are the fundamental movements of the new community, the new family of Jesus. In this list, while some can happen in this building, just want to be honest about the reality that not all of them can happen in this building on a Sunday morning. And this is why, like, our heartbeat, River and Way's desire from the very beginning is that we would be a place that gathers in small communities all across the city, that we could do these things. That we could, like, quite literally obey the New Testament commands as we follow Jesus and we love God and we love one another. And if I'm honest, as we read the Acts 2 passage, it all feels really romantic. Like, it's like totally romanticized. It's the ideal and the high mark of the early church. To to be sure, the rest of the New Testament is addressing the reality that the church is not acting like the Acts 2 church anymore. Like very much of the scriptures in the New Testament are written to the church to go like, hey, do you remember that story? We should get back to that story where we love one another and forgive one another and call each other to holiness and encourage one another and build each other up. So I don't, like we want to we name the ideal and we want to do this in a similar way that Paul does. Paul like recognizes the ideal, the call, the invitation and then he also like holds with that the tension that it won't ever be fully met. But he doesn't compromise the ideal for the sake of reality. He holds the high ideal. And all, like we ought to, as well, hold the high ideal of what it means to participate in Christian community while fully recognizing we won't ever, River and Way won't ever be Acts 2. We won't, but, but we also won't stop trying. Like We also refuse to just compromise and settle for less than God's picture of flourishing. And I think one of the realities about community that like, yes, the Spirit has poured out in Acts 2 and forms this like, new community, this new family full of brothers and sisters. We're good. Don't worry, Bella. What, what this new community is doing is like reestablishing the way, not that we just see one another, but it's reestablishing the way that we see the world. It's reestablishing the way we see God as Father. It's reestablishing what we see as communal commitment for, for our community, for our society, for our culture. Generally, we say yes to community as long as it benefits my individual story. Generally, we say yes to community as long as it benefits my individual story. And the fundamental reality is the community of Christ is not about you and it's not about me. Like, to find your life, you must lose it. And to, like, be the greatest servant, you must, like, be la- Like, all of, the, all of the juxtapositions in the scriptures that hold mystery, community belongs in that as well. That, like, community is not for you, but it's actually the thing you need to form you. You can only be formed so much in the way of Jesus on an island by yourself. How do you grow in forgiveness if you don't ever trust anyone enough that they might actually hurt you? How do you grow in grace and grow in mercy? How do you grow in the way of Jesus if we refuse to share our lives with one another? And I know even by saying that in this room, like we all have relational wounds and hurt that want to keep us from trusting again. I fully recognize that and participate in that myself. But one of the beauties about the way of Jesus is the only way to take like relational hurt, relational wounds is not that like Jesus doesn't just generally supernaturally heal those pains. What Jesus often uses is a like trust again of people, a re-entering into relationship, a reconciliation of relationship. And that is because, like, again, hold the Trinitarian picture in your mind. All things from God flow out of relationship. And so, in the same sort of way, like, as we experience hurt and pain, as we experience discomfort, as we experience disagreement within the community of Christ, those things are intended to form you. You can run from them. You can. There are lots of people who do. But if you want to experience flourishing in the kingdom of God, you don't actually get to flourishing on your own. You need the community of Christ around you. You need people who know you, who like who you trust and who trust you. People who will say the hard things that nobody else will say. The people who will call you more to God than anyone else will call you. And the way that we get to that place is by sharing our life in this Acts 2 sort of way with one another. That's, like, that's the mechanism of discipleship that we see, that we feel like River and Way is invited to. Because ultimately, the, like the invitation is to grow, as we follow Jesus, the invitation is to grow in our love for God and our love for neighbor. And the best way to grow in love is not to, like, keep a safe distance. The best way to grow in love is to grow in vulnerability, is to grow in honesty, is to grow in confession and shared life together. And I'm not saying don't be wise about that. Practice wisdom. But don't, because of your past hurts and wounds, don't close yourself off to others to ensure you never get hurt again. Because what'll happen is you actually will, you will protect yourself from being hurt, but you'll also protect yourself from being loved as a part of the community of Christ. And so, um, just important life together. It's a mid of, mix of like organic and inorganic. But what what we see is that when you participate in, in like Christian community, that like the the yield of that. Is, is a deep love for one another. As you, like, as you are called to people over time, what yields from that is a deep love. And that love is actually supposed to be the picture to the world of who God is. John thirteen thirty five says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Think about that just for a second. People will know you follow Jesus because of your love for one another. Christian community is not fundamentally about you. It is, it is for you and for your benefit and formation in the way of Jesus. But ultimately, it is that the world might know the love of God by the way that we love one another. And this is not some, like, descript, superficial, cheery Sunday love. This is the, like, hard things and pains of life sort of love. This is the we had all things in common kind of language, even though everything in life says we shouldn't even be friends. This is not having some things in common while it was convenient for us to be here. This is the beckon of Christian hope and Christian life and Christian community. This is how God is known to the world. And just imagine, like, what if instead of inviting your friends far from God to church on Sunday, you invited them to your home to share a meal with 10 other people who you loved and followed Jesus with? Imagine the aroma of that place. Old friends, good wine, homemade bread, conversation around the table. What if, like, that was a micro experience of church and following Jesus? What if that is where you grew spiritually? What if you finally had a place, and this will speak to many people in the room, myself included? What if you finally had a place that you could be open and honest with yourself in the highs and lows of following Jesus in the day in, day out version of life? No facade, no facade, no fake. No masks, just knownness. Like naked and unashamedness, not literally naked, but naked and unashamedness. And that is the picture of Christian community. While we see it revealed in Acts two, we again recognize we see it in Acts 4, but the rest of the New Testament is beckoning followers of Jesus to like get back to authentic Christian community, to live well together. Read Corinthians. Paul wrote it because things are messy. But I want to be honest about the reality. While it's very romantic, I also want to say, like, Christian family is really hard. It's not easy. The reason many of us have reservations, even about this conversation or stepping into Christian community, is because we've tried it before and it didn't go all too well. We've left, like, wounded or hurt or let down from our other experiences. And I want to, like, yes and amen those things. That is true. This is, like, this ideal is a really high and hard ideal. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, says, the person who loves their dream of community will quickly destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create a new community. I want to read that again. The person who loves their dream of community will quickly destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. And I think that's the invitation for us. Um, if you know the River and waste story, our, our heart, our desire is to be like a gathering of house churches all across the city that celebrate Jesus on Sundays, that come together and celebrate the King, but that we live life scattered across the city in little pockets of homes all together. And while our hope and vision is that these will be coming in the winter, the question is, like, what do we do in the meantime? And I will tell you this just honestly. (laughs) Do not wait for us to lead you and pursue living Christ's ideals. Follow Jesus faithfully now. Start leaning into hard things now. Start leaning into deeper relationship now. You can start being the person who loves others around you in such an intentional and radical way that it begins to form a new type of community. And if I'm honest, like even the journey toward planting house churches in the winter, like this is going to take some, for those of you who are going to say yes and participate, this is going to take some reorientation of your life and my life. Prioritizing gathering for dinner every week with people is not a like convenient or passive yes. That is a heavy commitment. That is a heavy prioritization. But the goal of Christendom has never been just individual salvation, but always the saving and redeeming of a community of people. And the goal of sanctification, of growing in Christ-likeness, has never been like you on your own journey in the prayer closet. That is a significant part of it, but it is not the only piece of the puzzle. In post-Reformation, we have chosen to see the salvation of the individual as a high mark. And we were not wrong to do that. We were right to do that. Not Like, I wasn't there, but collectively. But what has now happened is we have lost the value of the community of Christ as a whole. We are more divided than we've ever been. We're more at odds than we've ever been. We're less unified than we've ever been. Like the seams of the Christian story, if you're an outsider, don't seem to hold up real well. And I think it's time for us to like inherit a new vision of unity with the body of Christ both like inside this building and across the city. It's time for like the Spirit of God to unify us as we commit to follow Him together. As we say yes to following the way of Jesus, like community, life, familia is created. People who don't have family, who don't have a home, who don't have community, have a place to belong. And there's no like hierarchy in the kingdom. Like we all just sit around the king's table together. And that like that's the type of like community creation we want to be a part of. The scriptures, we must remember the scriptures are primarily written to communities of people. The commands from Jesus and the other New Testament authors are not written in the, like, you must form, but y'all, like, plural form. We don't have a word for it. Y'all is the best we can do. But, like, us together are called to obey these commands. The vision for flourishing in the kingdom of God does not include you by yourself going at it alone for Jesus. Our story has to be a better story than that. And it has to include the people around you. It has to include you and me and other brothers and sisters, in the words of Jesus. The vision of flourishing is a community of people encouraging, praying, sharing food and life with one another. Let's close with this. If you would let me wander into a bit of a thought experiment real quickly, I want you to imagine that you made an intentional decision and to lean, like, to lean in to doing life with me and Jackie and 10 other people. And that intentional decision means that like, we we're all follow Jesus and we're all weekly going to gather and like, share a meal and share life together for the next, let's say, five years. I was going to say 20. 20 seems like a really long time. For the next five years, you're going to say yes to committing to doing like weekly dinner at our house. And each week, we're going to share food and meal and prayer and life together. We're going to break bread and discuss how we really feel about the jobs we do each day. We're going to discuss the state of our country and what we think we should or are supposed to do or not do about it. We're going to have honest conversation about the next presidential campaign. We're going to lament when the next George Floyd tragedy happens. We're going to cry together when someone miscarries a child. We're going to have hard conversations when you raised your voice at me because I was being silly and sometime you held a deep conviction about it. We're going to make sure the reason we gather together is actually happening. We're going to journey through service at the homeless shelter together. We're gonna get to know each other's kids' names and parenting styles well enough that when you step into our home, you also step in to help parent our children. We're gonna share life in every possible regard together as we commit to each other in following Jesus together in the kingdom of God. We're going to celebrate when you get promoted. We're going to bring new meals when new babies and injuries and surgeries and all the other reasons we bring meals. Like we're going to do all of those things. We're going to dance at weddings and we're going to cry at funerals. We're going to share our gifts and our talents and our lives. We're going to follow Jesus together. And if that picture has like any distorted reality from both the like romantic perspective of it and the difficulty of it, then we're not seeing the full picture. Because doing life together as the church is always mess and always miracle. They cannot be pulled apart. But that is what like following Jesus together looks like commitment to gather in homes and break bread and pray, be devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to fellowship. And these things, like the primary end of it is not you. The primary end of it is God. But you get to grow and be formed in Christlikeness along the way. When we say yes to community together, to life together, we we learn how to serve one another and truly love one another like the scriptures invite us to. Imagine how that would feel. Imagine what, like being fully known and fully seen by people around you and love you and expect. the best things are always hard. In that journey to becoming a family, we'll find and experience more of God's grace, more of God's love, and more of God's plan for flourishing than we ever would be able to alone. And that is the invitation from Acts 2 is that because of Christ-like community, we would grow in flourishing as we follow Jesus in all of our lives together. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for your nearness to us. We thank you for the aroma, the goodness of you and your presence. Thank you that you fill us anew. And God, we just ask that as we um, just hear your word, that our hearts would be encouraged that we would catch vision for like your picture of community and flourishing while also holding the reality of tension within that conversation as well. But God, would your spirit even come now and encourage our hearts to lean into one another more for the sake of like leaning in and about our own well-being for the end being like the glorified King and Savior Jesus. And so, God, may we be transformed. May we be called to more, more hard things even, if that's what is necessary and needed for, like, God, you to be exalted through our lives. We trust your story more than we trust any story we can ever create. love you. Amen. Over this next song, we're going to get the elements of communion.